Hello and welcome to the Phileas Club, the show where we get people from around the world to tell you how they saw the news in the past month. This is episode number 44 for February 2012. Hello everyone and welcome to the Phileas Club. This is the show where we sit around a table and invite you at that table. You might think this is pretty common. I sit at tables all the time. Well, This table is kind of different because it spans continents. Yes, that's right. We get people from different parts of the world to sit down and discuss what's been going on in the world in the past month or so. And uh, it's pretty cool because we get to have um, opinions and ideas and uh, views from different cultures and countries. So hopefully it is interesting for everyone. Today, uh, well, I might introduce myself maybe in case you haven't listened to the show before. My name is Patrick Beja. I live in France. Um, and uh, that's about it for me. We also have Kerwin, who is in the UK at the moment, right? You're always traveling. I'm never sure. This month I'm in London. Yes. Hello, okay. everybody. Hey, Kerwin. Uh, and we also have uh, Omri, who, is, uh, who has been on the show before, just as uh, Kerwin has. And uh, Omri is splitting his life between the U.S. and uh, Israel. So at the moment, you're in uh, Tel Aviv, right? Yeah, right now I'm in uh, Ramat Asheron, which is a small town north of Tel Aviv. It's great to be here. Excellent. Thank you very much for being here, both of you. Um, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm always glad to have Kerwin uh, on the show, obviously, but uh, I'm especially glad to have you, Omri, because uh, we've had, you know, we've been talking for a few months, even more than a year, about a lot of things that, that have been happening in the Middle East, and we haven't had a huge amount of uh, feedback from the other side of the fence, if you might excuse that horrible joke, um, from the Israeli. So hopefully you can provide that for us, because again, we're going to be talking about the Middle East and more specifically about Syria. Well, I'm not official uh, speaker of the State of Israel. I'm uh, speaking for myself, but uh, I can tell you that I, I'll try to give my opinion, and I think the the man in the street opinion. So. Yeah, that's, you know, that's always what we're looking for in, uh, in this show. We're trying to uh, evaluate more or less how the people in that country, uh, you know, might see those situations rather than the official uh, state uh, stated opinion. And uh, um, you, we have the UN for that part, so we should be good. <laughs> um, I, we're going to start with Europe, though. Um, and of course, oh, I... Someone is doing the dishes at your place, Omri. Oh, no. Oh, okay. it's, then, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm in a closed <laughs> room. So. Oh, okay. I don't know. I was hearing plates being shuffled. And that's how you know it's a real show, people. It's not <laughs> just, you know, journalists presenting their stuff from a cold white room. It's real people. All right. So at a table down. continents wide with plates <laughs> and pots and pans the size of countries. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So sit down, relax, have a coffee, and uh, we're going to be together for a little bit uh, over an hour, I'm guessing, maybe a little bit less. Um, okay, so let's start with uh, the thing that has been occupying most of our month, at least here in France. Um, it's Greece and the Euro crisis. Uh, it seems, I, I'm not going to go into all the details about 
Greece anymore. We've been talking about it for months and months. But uh, it seems that the euro crisis part of it has has been pretty much uh, constrained to Greece, at least for the month. I mean, obviously, um, Italy and uh, Spain are mostly... They're 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 not you know in a good shape, but we they haven't been the main concern. The main concern have been uh, Greece itself and the fact that they were um, being difficult, <laughs> and by that I mean they were hanging on to dear life for dear life to uh, you know their some of their um, benefits, and finally, finally after weeks of protest and uh, and really difficult political situation both in in uh, i was going to say in turkey crap uh in greece and oh i didn't mention turkey isn't here well he's not here he'll be back next next month i'm sure um so both for greece and for europe um at the european union it's been, it's been incredibly difficult because um the U, the the european union has been offering more money to the uh, greek government uh, in order to avoid the default of the government and but they've been asking even more with even more insistence than before uh, for guarantees and assurances that the money would be well spent that uh, the spending would be reduced as much as possible and by what we hear from the greek people uh, demonstrating in the street even more than what's possible and reasonable um, so it's sort of a we're not sure exactly what to think situation here because on the one hand, what I've been saying before is definitely a feeling that we have, which is they are responsible for what's happening, for being in this situation, just as, you know, other countries have been spending too much and and maybe not being rigorous enough. And Greece seems to have been the worst of those. So they should make an effort. But at the same time, it's been it's. It, it looks like it's so hard and they're cutting so much that we're sort of feeling sorry for, for what's happening. But I don't know that we have any other solution than being incredibly harsh. Um, but Kerwin, I guess the, you know, yeah. the UK is a little bit outside of, of that issue somewhat because obviously you don't have the euro. Uh, you're not part of the monetary union. So is that just as big of a concern in the UK or not as much? Uh, I, I, I think that for most of the population, it's a foreign issue um, mm. because we're not in the euro. I think for the government that they are concerned about what's going on because even if the currencies are separate, the European and British economies are thoroughly enmeshed with each other. Yeah. And where the euro goes, the pound goes... Um, Quite a long way as well, uh, and yeah, the British economy. Being a so, so, I think that, I mean, David Cameron is pushing in the background for whatever he thinks is is the right answer to him. I think that he he shot himself in the foot a little while ago, um, if you remember, a couple of months ago, where he vetoed some of the previous packages that. Um, Sarkozy and Merkel were trying to push through. Hmm. Um, and I think he's realised that that was a diplomatic mistake. Right. Uh, yeah. 
So, so is it? But what about uh, people around you? The general feeling is it? Well, it's their own damn fault. Those dirty Greeks, or is it like, oh my God, we're bleeding the Greeks, and they're you know, there's no way they can take that for much longer. I think the people are going to see those kinds of austerity measures as similar, well, not much worse than what's happening in the UK, but it's paralleling what's happening in the UK at the moment. There's a lot of people talking here about um, quite actively using the phrase, you know, the social contract is being torn up, or it's yeah. being rewritten, the welfare state is actively being dismantled, like quite quite consistent effort to dismantle the welfare state at the moment from the conservative government. So I think that they, a lot of the people here can uh, sympathize entirely with what, the way the Greek people are reacting. I was talking to someone about um, the issue of the Greek, uh, the Greek sovereign debt crisis. Okay, can you speak a little bit louder, Kerwin? You're, you're a bit quiet. Okay. Is this any better? Is it the microphone... No, I think you're just your voice. You're so silky smooth. Uh, <laughs> the British okay. accent. I wish I had one. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, I'll speak louder. Thanks. So one of the things that I, we were discussing a couple of days ago is that uh, the debt that Greece contracted, the government of Greece contracted, well, there are two parties to the, that debt. There was the government borrowing and there were the creditors as well. And huge amounts of this debt, I believe, was contracted from banks and other private sources. Mm. The, the European Union is not putting pressure on those counterparties to the debt to uh, carry any of the burden of this crisis. Mm. So in that way, it looks as though, well, this is just another way in which uh, European economies or the Western economies, however you want to put it, are beholden to Uh, beholden to the big banks, beholden to this yeah. mentality that the banks are too big to fail, etc., uh, etc. Et um, so I think, think that the, there's a lot of parallels between what happens in Greece and what happens here. I think it plays out more dramatically in Greece. Um, and um, I suppose people look at Greece as a foreign issue because there's enough things to worry about here. Mm. Uh, and the euro does mean that it's not not okay. a kind of solidarity, but it's something yeah. that we understand quite well, I would say. Sure. I'm sorry, your your sound quality is kind of uh, not very good, so uh, I don't know if we can fix that uh, on the fly. Um, hmm. What can you? What kind of mic are you using? I'm using a headset. Okay. Maybe put the mic closer to your mouth if you can. It's kind of touching. That. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right. We'll 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 manage. Um, Omri, what about yourself? I mean, obviously Greece is you know very sort of part of the Mediterranean, so it might be a little bit closer geographically, even though it's in the uh, you know in the the EU and and has little to do economically with you guys. Uh, is the euro crisis a concern for Israel or? Not even. Well, it is a concern, and I think uh, people here feel for the Greek people. It's, uh, I don't think it's a fun situation. Uh, I think the, the source for this problem is that not all economies are the same, right? And, uh, but you all have the same currency, and that's a problem. And most governments now uh, don't have control over the currency. They can't deflate it, 
Uh, Israel had a similar problem in the 80s, high debt um, and uh, problem, but he, we had control on, over our own currency so we could deflate it, make a new currency, and together with austerity uh, measures, uh, it solved the problem. But uh, unless Greek uh, get out of the eurozone, uh, you know, it can't actually do that. It's beholden to the euro. It's not, sure. you know, it's not what the American or the British can do. They can just print more money. Mm. And it's like, a, it's like a soft default. They are defaulting by giving you the same amount of money, but, the, you know, wor- the money worth less. But, mm. uh, yeah, it's uh, actually there's a lot of people apparently in economic circles that would, at least in France, who would really like to, uh, from what I understand, um, everyone except for Germany would like to uh, to do that, would like to make inflation happen and that would solve everything but germany is sort of very much afraid of that because i guess of images of you know the weimar republic of money yeah. and what sorry images of the weimar republic you know images yeah, exactly, of the yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. you know buckets of money to buy a, a, a potato basically you know that so yeah definitely that would be something we could but that's the way You guys did it in the uh, in the eighties when you had that issue. Yeah, well, it's not a magic bullet. Uh, there are winners and losers in any situation like that. Yeah. But uh, as you said, when somebody borrow money, somebody is giving the money. Yeah, and it's a uh, it's a contract, and it's a dangerous contract. Every time yeah. you give money somebody, there is a chance of default. Yeah. So it has to be priced in the money, and uh, they should take. You know, right now, what Europe is doing is bailing out. The, the, the people who loan the money on yeah. the top of the Greek people. Now, it might be the Greek people, uh, you know, own problem. They actually borrow well, money. Yeah, that's the thing. If, if the Greeks didn't have a, a solid managing of their economic situation, then it feels like it's their fault and it's horrible, but, you know. No, think about before Greek joined the Eurozone, it had its own currency, the drachma, which was worth much less. So Greek export was much cheaper. Mm. So mm. they could export things, mm. and the economy was smaller, well, because the currency was cheaper. Yeah. And now they have a very strong currency, and they, they are not as competitive. So that's sure. another problem. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so it's not as you know, black and white, I guess. In, uh, so do you talk a, a lot about the euro crisis in, in Israel? Not much. It's more about uh, you know the price uh, of the shekel compared to the dollar or the euro mm. and the trends and the you know yeah. we're a small economy. We're worried about what happened because Europe is the biggest uh, Israel. The biggest exporter is uh, Europe, so we export to Europe more than any anywhere else. So we we care about what happens there. Mm. So talking about what has been your primary concern, I'm guessing for the past year or so. I mean you've lived mostly in in um in the US from what i understand or maybe split your time um but for israel th- there there must have been a lot of crazy months in the past year um you had a a, a little bit of time on the show a few months ago mm-hmm. but we haven't really had time to explore uh that aspect of things a lot And certainly with the Arab Spring and what's happening now, Israel has been both... So, okay, basically, 
freedom, uh, democracy, all of that is super good, and I'm sure everyone is happy about that. On the other hand, uh, democracy in Arab countries often brings, uh, you know, Islamic regimes, and the exactly. Muslim Brotherhood is has proven that, you know, I mean, the examples we've had have proven that the Muslim Brotherhood is usually the one that ends up in power. Now, they might be saying, uh, we want to institute a, a, a tolerant version of the Islamic law, but it's still definitely a concern specifically for Israel. So how have, have things been received and how have people you know, received all of these series of uh, uprisings and revolutions that are uh, by themselves good news. But um. Yeah, so people here are very, uh, um, you know, don't know exactly how to think about that. On one hand, as you said, everybody is for democracy and uh, very hopeful that uh, good things will happen. On the other hand, you see, you know, take, take two countries, for example. You have Egypt and Syria, okay? Yeah. In both countries, you have secular despots that rule over the country. In Egypt, the despot was more fairly, you know, we had a, a cold peace uh, treaty with Egypt and uh, and uh, we had a warm relationship with, specifically with, uh, uh, with the leader of Egypt. Hmm. In Syria, we have uh, a cold war, so it's, uh, it's not a peace, but there is a very stable border there. Yeah. But on the other hand, the Syria despot is uh, is a friend of uh, Iran and, and is helping uh, Hezbollah. So, um, and then what happened in Egypt? We lost. Uh, we lost. It's not uh, you know our doing, but uh, I mean we're. I'm I'm personally very happy for the Egyptian uh, uh, people. You know, get democracy as uh, people said. It's uh, the worst uh, uh, kind of uh, you know of. Uh, it's a it's a worse way to rule yourself, but it's better than anything else. So, yeah. uh, and, and freedom is better than anything else. And when you have despot, you get Muslim bravoship. You, you get you get all the craziness, you know, yeah. uh, growing. So we're happy for them. But then look at who won, and look at the problem we have ever since. The we had the gas treaty where we get uh, cheap uh, um, Egyptian gas. Uh, to power most of Israel, and they just uh, blew up the the gas pipe for like ten times. So we can oh, rely on that. So the electricity prices in Israel, yeah. yeah, has been going up like fifty percent. Mm. In, in so, the past, you know, you mean in the past four months or so? Oh yeah, yeah, because we can't. Uh, we, are, we you know we were pretty reliant on Egyptian gas until we can develop our own gas finding in the Mediterranean. Mm. Uh, in, in Syria, it's a different matter. In Syria, it's like a lose-lose situation. So right now, we have a despot that is a friend of uh, Iran and Hezbollah, and nobody likes him. On the other hand, he's, he keeps a border, at least with the uh, Syria stable. But then, you know, I personally would love to have him, you know, I, I see the pictures as everybody else. I would love him to get out of power. Mm. But then, of course, we worried we'll get the same scenario like uh, Egypt. But I don't think it can be worse than what we have right now. So... Yeah. yeah. So, basically, in general, uh, you're—it's f- hard to say. As as you're saying, I'm sure people are not exactly sure what to think. But let's look at it like that. This is the situation going to be worse for Israel now that uh, you know these countries have democracy. I don't think Muslim- so. I okay. I trust in the people. I really mm. do. I I think that uh, going to the Muslim Brotherhood is a knee-jerk. It's uh, 
you know, there were the opposition uh, mm. during the long uh, secular rule of a despot. So I think it's a counter uh, movement. And if people have, uh, I don't think they'll break the peace treaty, which is the most important thing to us. But yeah. uh, and then uh, you know, people ruling themselves, especially now with uh, social networks, and uh, you can't really hide uh, what's happening. And I, I hope that uh, over time, you know, they'll get a better life and uh, we'll get a warmer. I think democracies can work together better than uh, mm. than uh, democracy in a despot. Okay. All right. I'm well, cautiously optimist. <laughs> I think it 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 mirrors uh, a lot of people's thoughts in in here too, as we've talked uh, a few times already. Kerwin, you were going to say something. Yeah, I think it's interesting that your concerns about the instability that might result are um, quite heavily economic, uh, as well as perhaps political. But I think when looking from the outside world, looking from the English speaking world. Uh, when you think, what's Israel going to think about the Arab Spring around it? Is it going to think, well, this is a huge, this is a political threat um, to the state of Israel? And you're saying, well, it's really more in the short term, at least, a threat to the price of gas uh, and other things like that. It's interesting that it, that those are the effects that people might be more concerned of than what the outside world would perceive would be Israel's interests in this story. Yeah, I guess the, that's a, a, an interesting point. You're, you didn't mention we're afraid that all of a sudden everyone is going to, you know, start a war again. That's not even in, in people's minds. Well, think, look at what happened in Egypt. Uh, you need to start a war, uh, a real war in, in the 20th century or 21st century. We need a good economy. Mm. And they shot their economy in the foot. Um, so I don't think we're worried about armies marching uh, to our borders. And uh, I think, again, the Israeli army, I think, can handle uh, real armies, not, uh, you know, um, go, you know uh, popular movements. So yeah. I don't think we're worried about war per se. Uh, we are more worried about, uh, if you're talking about external threat, uh, Iran, Hezbollah, um, Hamas in the, the Gaza Strip, and the threat of rockets from all three mm. borders, and especially instability from Syria, which was a very stable, Syria and Egypt, both of them were very stable borders. Sure. And of course, what would happen to the uh, Jordanian despot? You know, he's a king, right? He's a despot yeah. king. And the majority there is Palestine. So, yeah. uh, again, it's the same thing as in Syria. So he can fall also. So, again, he's a half-friendly despot. And uh, I think that's the case, yeah, for, for pretty much everyone. Of course, Israel is a lot more uh, directly impacted by all of those. But everyone, we had good relationships with all of those despots now, you know, after a few decades of uh, difficult situations, we sort of got around to being on okay terms. I don't even want to say friendly terms, but although that would be appropriate in some cases. So, um, yeah, you, you, so you mentioned Syria, and obviously that's been a huge, um, a, a huge part of the news cycle, and Syria and the fact that the UN is now actively pushing for uh, resolutions against the Assad family. Uh, Hamas, you were mentioning them, has uh, come out against the Assad family very recently, a couple of Which days Which is ago. very funny because uh, their whole political uh, uh, leadership were hosted at uh, Syria. Yeah, so... Well, the thing is, things are really... I, I think last month we were saying, we were mentioning that 
we couldn't really see how things were going to evolve in anything other than probably something pretty bad for the Assad family and the uh, the regime in Syria and it seemed like it was going to turn to turn into a full on a full out uh civil war and it looks like it looks like we're now in the first steps of that civil war with uh, with active fighting and the UN discussing how to arm uh, maybe the 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 opposition and the only basically the only two holdouts to being more active in that conflict are Russia and China uh, both well there are several points i'm sorry there are several yeah. points about Syria that you need to discuss one uh, it's nothing new uh, the father of the current Syrian uh, despot uh, also had uh, a rebellion and he crushed it very uh, forcibly. Uh, I think well, it, it seems like this one – I mean do you think – Do you th are you saying that you think it might still be crushed? The, the, there is two points to that. One, I think the, he saw what happened in, the, in other countries and what happened to the leader, the defeated leaders in other countries. And the second point is that in Syria you have two, uh, you have a minority ruling over the majority. And the minority, I think, fear very much what would happen if they lose power. Mm -hmm. So I think they will fight uh, very strongly because uh, I think they know what happened if they lose. So uh, that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. I, don't think he, I don't think he thinks he has anything to lose. I. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I but the pro well, he always has something to lose. He could lose, you know, his head, for example. <laughs> well, ugly head. I can yeah, say that. Sure, but I'm sure he likes it nonetheless. <laughs> um but you know, that's basically what what we've been hearing the past couple of days is the only way out now would be for Syrian uh officials for, you know, the Assad family to agree to stop everything to leave power and then there would be a general you know blanket amnesty for everything that has happened and that's the only way that it could end without a lot more blood being shed i think it's such much it, a bigger thing than you think it's also a, a dispute between uh, hezbollah and iran on one side helping uh, the syrian uh, president on the other hand you have qatar and saudi saudi arabia obviously. helping the rebels so it's uh it's a war between wars, so it's uh, more mm. than just a simple conflict. And also, if it's minority ruling over majority, if uh, Assad is, leaves and he and his co um, entourage have amnesty, what then happens to the minority? Um, I think they would need to. Well, I don't know. We're we're delving into uh, conjecture here, uh, but you know, there there would need to be. I don't know how you call those, but in French we say uh, réconciliation nationale, which is basically a system where after civil war, uh, a heavy conflict, you go around and you say, all right, now we're completely done. No one kill anyone. We stop. <laughs> and, you know, that's it. Now we're, we're friends now. And which that's... is what they did in Rwanda and what exactly, they've done yeah. in South Africa. Yeah. Has it... But that's not something that I've heard much talk about in any of the Arab nations, in any of the Arab Spring, a national truth commission? Well, because none of them stopped. All the, you know, well, m most of the uh, leaders there went to the end. They just didn't want to give up, and so they ended up in a ditch somewhere. Um, so 
if as and it doesn't to be completely clear it doesn't really look at least what we're hearing is that it doesn't look at all like Assad is going to give up so this is just how could we make it work maybe it's not this yeah. is the plan um yeah. so so tell us about you know Turkey, uh, Turkey, Kerwin, um, what do you, how, how has this, I'm sure it's been, you know, the main news item everywhere for, for you guys too, right? Uh, it's been a big news item, but in terms of the attitudes, uh, someone, I, when I was asking someone about this issue a few weeks ago, came up with a really good phrase, which is Arab Spring Fatigue. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a neat phrase for a, what's quite a horrible thing, really that um, I think in some ways the parts of the British population have moved on from the issue, which is, uh, you know, something that we do from a position of incredible privilege and safety and security on this little island uh, to say, you know what, we're just tired of hearing about it. But I, I, I think that's true in some ways that the Arab Spring was a particular moment and in some ways it's no longer the con- part of the contemporary moment now. So even in academic discourses I'm starting to see uh, lectures and presentations and papers and things like that talking about uh, the Arab world post-2011. Well it's 2012 now, they're kind of consigning the Arab Spring to the past and what we're left with now is uh, Issues that have kind of overstayed their welcome in the popular mm. consciousness. You, you mean Syria? Even Syria is not... Yeah, I'm, and mm. it refers to Syria. You know, why did we intervene in Libya but not in Syria? Well, because in Libya we're full of energy and enthusiasm uh, that we could change things. And in Syria, I think we just don't have that energy anymore for the issue. And the cynicism also... can say that uh, Libya is full of real energy of oil and Syria is not. <laughs> that ah, yes. might also play a small role. There, there's also another thing which is a lot of people seem to be wary of the fact that in Libya, when we first started in Libya, we were saying there won't be an armed conflict and it will just be, you know, a little thing that will go in, will offer a little bit of assistance but we won't do too much and in turn of course it turned of course into something a lot more active so a lot of people seem to be saying especially in you know uh russia and maybe china let's you know let's not do that again let's make sure we have a huge amount of you know we've exhausted every other possibility and then we'll see what happens um so what about israel with syria there's you know, is it just more of the same, or? Yeah, as I told you, it's uh, it's hard to know. You know, officially Israel, I think uh, the official Israel uh, would not like to see Assad go. It's a uh, it's a despot they can work with. He kept the border stable uh, for a time, but it, it went into a point. I think that uh, you know, it's uh, the all 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 options are bad even for official Israel, because uh, he is supporting Hezbollah, he is uh, supported by Iran. So, you know, if he go, I think it's uh, uncertainly what would happen, but I don't think it could be worse than uh, the point now. And I think the the person in the street uh, feels for the, you know, the dying population there. It's, it's yeah. not a easy sight to see. Yeah. 
All right. I guess there isn't much more to say about uh, about Syria. Um, let's move on to Iran then, who, which very proudly uh, showcased their advances in their nuclear program. And that, of course, once again prompted the uh, international community to freak out because you know, if it, they're presenting it as civil use of nuclear energy, but of course we're very concerned that uh, it might turn into a uh, military use of nuclear, you know, technology. And more concerned than everyone else in the whole world, I guess, would be uh, uh, Israel, which is just a stone throw away, and Iran, uh, Iran being. Uh, less than friendly, uh, it might turn into something very, a very dangerous situation. Well, you have to have a very strong arm to throw that stone. You have to <laughs> cross through uh, Iraq and, uh, and uh, Jordan to get yeah. to, to Iran. It's not that close. No, certainly. But, I mean, if they do develop you know, nuclear uh, missiles, it could definitely reach uh, Israel. Oh, yeah. So that's so, like the... the you know, this is the the drums of uh, Iran. Is uh, the it's similar to me? I was in uh, the U.S. when they were starting to drum up the the Iraq war. So it's uh, a similar feeling here. I, I personally believe that Israel' biggest problem is internal, not external, and uh, especially with uh, you know very orthodox, very um, religious population inside of Israel. And changing from democracy to something else—that's uh, something that I think worries me more than the threat of Iran. Officially, Israel is very worried about Iran. It's a country that's saying that uh, they want to destroy us, and uh, it's a religious rule that uh, might not be a stable rule that uh, knows the consequence of throwing an atomic bomb. Because I think it's uh, so. It's, so you, there's yeah. a feeling that. Even if they do end up getting it, it's just for show, and they would never use it. Or no, the the worry is uh, the same with uh, you know it's a, it's a religious uh, ultra ultra religious uh, uh, regime. Who knows what they are thinking? They might say it's a tenant from God to destroy Israel, and we don't care what happened to us because I think they know that there'll be retaliation. I think for Israel, it will be uh, you know retaliation is funny. You know, it's it's well, it's not funny. It's uh, for you know. Sorry? No, for for Israel, retaliation right. after they bomb us, it's you know it's 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 over for us, you know. So we yeah. can destroy them again, but that won't be very useful. I think. Also, when you look in Israel, if they are really a friend, if the Iranian claim to be friend of the Palestinian, you can't really destroy Israel without destroying the Palestinian. You know, we are so close mm -hmm. to each other. So that's. Uh, but again, and again, the the another problem is that Hezbollah, Iran friend, is uh, just there on our northern border, and it's not the. Uh, it's not the Lebanese government, right? It's just an organization. And if uh, they get nuclear technology or weapons from uh, from Iran, uh, that could be a threat that uh, will just drive people away from Israel. You know, people will just be afraid to live here. That's one mm. way to destroy it. So, oh, so you're, there is a, a fear that uh, Hezbollah would get the, the technology from uh, Iran directly? Oh, yeah, yeah. Iran is giving them almost everything else. So uh, Yeah, but I mean, yeah, but that's not, you know, that uh, for me, the first thing I go to when you're saying that it's like, okay, you can have money and and weapons, but uh, nuclear a nuclear bomb is not something you would just hand off to, even if they're very close. And they, you know, it, it's it seems like something. My first reaction would be, it seems like something even the Iran uh, the Iranian government would not do. 
Well, you're thinking as a rational human being. So, uh, <laughs> sure. Okay. That's the biggest problem. If they are rational, why they are uh, destroying their own economy to, to, and you know, fighting all the world to get nuclear weapons? Hmm. They are destroying their, their economy. Their, their currency was devalued by almost 50% in the last two years. Uh, they are in big troubles. Uh, why do they take all this trouble to build so many nuclear sites, to dig them underground, to, to, to fight with the whole world just to get peacetime nuclear? And if it's not peacetime, why they are spending so much energy when, you know, what, what, what they want to do with it if they are never going to throw it? There's there's been a number of uh, of I guess people and myself saying, uh, well, not myself, but I mean I've been hearing that it, uh, Ahmadinejad is not that much of an extremist, and he's just doing these things as a token gesture towards the the religious uh, the religious uh, part of his party. Do you believe that's not necessarily the, the case, or is he now a, a, a hostage of the religious uh, strengths in the, in the country? Or so what I'm hearing from well, it's the Israeli newspaper, so who knows what the truth is? That yeah, uh, yeah. there is a, a rupture between uh, Ahmadinejad and the religious sect. So you know, the, at least the, you know Ahmadinejad is not the leader of Iran. It's the Ayatollah yeah. who is the leader. So. And that they don't like what he's doing. And uh, there is a lot of popular anger against him, especially because of economic reason, because the price of almost everything has been going up. And uh, oh, So he would be the one driving the nuclear research and the, the uh, religious groups would not necessarily be for it, is what you know, you're saying. The, the thing is, who knows? <laughs> no, of course, of course. But I mean, that's what's uh, being reported by some... Yeah, it's, it's been reported that's, that, that... Yeah, that's a strange strange uh, turn of things, because in my mind, it would be the, the you know the religious extremists that would be pursuing the, the nuclear research and Ahmadinejad being sort of forced to do it if he wants to stay in power. Well, they have their fake election pretty soon. And uh, fake or not, <laughs> it's still a populist anchor against them. Uh, I think they're trying to divert the, the, the anger toward Ahmadinejad. So... Mm. Maybe they are for it, but they are try- just trying to to remove themselves or to distance themselves uh, from him. So, right. and, but I have to tell you, there is a lot, a lot of talk in Israel about do we bomb them or not, and it's become like a ritual. You, you can't open a newspaper without somebody saying something. And I think most Israeli are very split about it. I think it's uh, it's. Uh, I, I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried that. So it's a serious. It's a serious discussion now. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a serious discussion. I think people are worried that they're going to actually do that, you know, our government. Because, uh, and again, it's a hard call, you know, when you have, uh, sometimes, you, you know, it worked in the Iraq. Uh, so we famously Israeli bombed the Iraq uh, nuclear facility. Uh, but that's not the same as Iran. It's uh, further away. They have much more than one uh, site that you have to bomb. And I think Israel was focused uh, for a long time on the, you know, killing Iranian uh, nuclear scientists and uh, mm. sending, uh, you know, uh, uh, software virus, software viruses and all that. Right, uh, the, the the Stuxnet uh, thing. Yeah, Which but is, I think yeah. it, it's everyone agrees that it's uh, Israeli engineered. I think so. I, well, yeah. nobody is actually saying. Nobody that. knows, of course. Yeah, but. it's like uh, hink hink. Uh, yes, right. So. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, so, and and that you know, I think everybody in Israel, uh, well, 
I don't know about killing scientists as one. <laughs> I would not like them to start uh, killing our scientists. But um, I think they agree that that's a, a good way to, to, to delay everything and to see yeah. if the diplomatic and the pressure can work. But uh, mm. I, I'm worried. I think, I think it's not just worried. I think they might do it after all. And that would be a, a hugely dangerous uh, endeavor. So. Yeah. And and uh, and the stress point with us and the American, I don't think that they want, especially not yeah. in the election year, mm. uh, to face that. But I think uh, yeah. I'm sorry, just last point. I think that Netanyahu that think that right now in an election year, it's the best way for him because look at uh, what happened in the recent uh, Repo- Republican debate. They were fighting each other, except of Ron Paul, to say how much they support and that uh, we should uh, bomb them. And they will, if they mm. were president, they would never. Uh, you know, stop us from bombing them and all of that. So I think he might he might say that now, before Obama gets another, uh, gets reelected, is the best time to do it. So people here are, you know, that's a real, a real thing that people are talking about. Mm. Okay. So in the government, there are voices for and voices against, or is everyone like, well, we might have to do it? Yeah, well, it's uh, for and against okay. all over the place. Kerwin, what about yeah. the lovely UK? Um, I'm I'm not sure how much this one registers. I guess the really thoughts are, wow. That's well, not um, amongst the people. I'm not sure it registers in quite the same way. Uh, I, I have some thoughts about. Uh, there's a lot of sophistry about well, if we can have the bombs, why exactly can't all of these other countries have the bombs? In the sense that. Uh, if they shouldn't have it, shouldn't we all? Yeah, there, there is. Up? Yeah, there is a little bit of that here too. I I have to say, uh, I think it personally, I think it's a little bit naive to look at it like that. But certainly, it does. Uh, it does come out as an argument. Yeah. Well, one argument we put forward was why do we trust Pakistan more than we trust Iran to have a bomb? For example, I mean. Yeah. Even I would say Iran, we don't trust any ha- anyone to have the bomb, but we're not yeah. happy to see you know one more person have it. Right. So is it just this ratcheting that every country, every next country that has it, we clamp down on? Uh, and then, to what extent do we want to stop these stop nuclear proliferation? To because it seems to me that we only ever use uh, soft power to stop it anyway. We use economic sanctions and other things, which have never been effective to stop any country doing anything. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree, but yeah, I, I mean, see like what you're North doing. Korea's nuclear program, for example. How much real effort have we put into stopping that compared mm. to Iran? Uh, so it's perhaps less about the bomb per se as the bomb proliferating in such a geopolitically sensitive area. Yeah, North Korea isn't, in a sense. China's more or less got North Korea under control if North Korea really gets uh, excited with its bombs. And yeah. US will back up South Korea. Mm. Um, so, I don't know. I guess I, I guess I can see a lot of value in that. I'm not sure how much I buy the argument that all of these governments will act irrationally or the threat is that they will act irrationally I don't think that that's the case, I think the bigger uh, the more realistic way to look at it is 
other governments will act rationally according to interests that aren't our own and that you can't necessarily predict how another person will rationally see their own interests. So hmm. I think it will be a very well thought out strategic decision by any government or other organisation who decides to launch a nuclear strike. We might not be, be, be able to see the logic of it, but that's not because it's an irrational decision. Yeah. I, so, I think that we can all agree that we, every, almost everyone in the world would be very happy if we have our Arab Spring in Iran. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't know. Last time they had that, it was actually when they, uh, you know, deposited the, the Shah and uh, went into the Islamic uh, um, another one regime. So and I guess yeah. I guess that's the avenue we're looking at when we're seeing the Muslim Brotherhood come up. It is the it is the uh, the Islamist side mm. of the politic getting yeah. into power. Yeah. Again, I think and it's a counter movement. So in the, when you have a a secular despot, you get a religious uh, uh, revolution. When you have a religious despot, you might get a secular revolution, but uh, that might just be uh, wishful thinking. Mm. Well, okay, I guess there is there is not much more to say about that. It's definitely one of the main concerns in, uh, I think, in the world in the past month. But uh, one of the other. Uh, There isn't anything else, right? It's it's almost for months now. Every time I I start the uh, lineup for the show, I'm like, all right, this is the same as it was last there month. Are, there so. are good things, you know. I, I think that uh, people are stuck in negativity too much. For example, just this week, uh, a new book was released by Peter Diamantis. He's a co-founder of uh, and the chairman of the X Prize and also the co-founder of Singularity University, he came up with a great book. I, I think you should all read it. It's called Abundance, Why the Future is Better Than You Think. Huh. So it's not all just uh, bad news. You know, I just yeah. read that. It was a shot of optimism. So uh, <laughs> I encourage all of you. You know. I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm definitely one of those people who says, uh, everyone always says, oh, I was better then, it was better now, you know, uh, when I was young or th stuff like that. I don't really understand those people. There was I, no uh, internet when I was young. I would never go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, internet, of course, is one of the main things we, we see. It's like, you know, before electricity or before running water. It's like, to me, it's the three uh, infrastructures that, that make our lives easier and, and better and richer. Uh, in all senses of the word. But even for other things, you know, there, there are a lot of people who say, ah, oh, kids today, they don't read anymore. And it seems to me like an incredibly narrow view of who the kids are and what, you know, what you, you think of when you're saying that. I and can't what they see... read from. Well, what they read is still a, another thing even. You might argue that they read a lot of blogs on the internet and that constitutes reading and people might argue against it. But even if you, you say read actual books, there are an incredible number of people who read in, in you know, you go out in the subway and, and one out of three people is reading. And you, so when you, you, you're thinking before, you know, They, they didn't, people read more. When is that mythical, mystical before where people read? Is it like 20 years ago? 
I don't think so. It was, you know, the economic situation for uh, for the for the country. I'm talking about France as a whole was very different back then. We the the we might have had a, a, a middle class, maybe not 20 years ago, but even 30 years ago, a middle class that was very. Uh, uh, comfortable but it wasn't as large i would think and they wouldn't have as much uh as much easy their life wasn't as easy i would think in the sense that today you have a tv very cheaply you have you know an a, a gaming console and you have a, an incredible phone that does everything for uh, what is actually a very reasonable price phone so is a, phone is the most important thing that you said phone um, cellular phones are just the most amazing revolution ever think about mm. farmers in in africa or in china or india that has a cellular phone they have sure. they better better conductivity than the president of the united states had 25 <laughs> years ago and if they are yeah. connected to google they have more information no, absolutely. But I mean, you know, I'm I'm talking about uh, uh, first world countries and people saying that before people read more, and I don't think that is the case. Fifty years ago, people didn't even go to school. Children didn't even go to school. So I don't know where that mythical place of before exists. I we think it only amazing, exists in, yeah. in people's minds, you know? We live in an amazing time and yeah. things are, you know, technology is just getting faster and in, in, in an amazing way. So I spent the summer at the Singularity University at NASA Ames. It's uh, close to the Google uh, head, headquarters in, mm. uh, in California. It's a whole university based on that uh, technology, is, at least uh, information technology, is, is accelerating exponentially. And people have a hard time even grasping what it means, you know, and the, the base uh, case, uh, the, the, the easiest to, thing to, to show is the computers, how a huge mainframe, you know, your cell phone is better than a huge mainframe like 20 years ago. Yeah. The huge advances and just taking this line forward and what the future can have, you know, what kind of technologies we can have in the future to solve our global challenges. So I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm not uh, worried yeah. uh, so much. I'm I'm very very optimistic as well. I mean, when I'm talking about the kind of convenient things we have, like TVs and things like that, it's it's really for. I'm really trying to 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 express the fact that thanks to technology and progress, now our concerns are: I can't buy a PlayStation, right? A, a, I a don't few... have freedom. You, yeah. No, no, that's that's how it happened. You first worry about your existence, your food mm. on the table and shelter. But once you have that, you want better things. You want education. You want freedom. Sure. So I think this is part why you see a lot of revolution right now. It's well, freedom that's, information. Yeah, that's that's my point. I think in in the third world now they're getting to that. You know, freedom. Um, well, I'm saying third world. I mean, you know, maybe not third world, but uh, you're, they're getting to that stage. But here. Even in our countries where there are a lot of problems, I don't want to say there aren't any problems, but our, con our daily concerns are not, am I going to be able to, to buy food at the end of the month? Most of, you know, I'm sure those people also exist, but most people worry about, am I going to be able to, you know, buy that thing that I want that is going to be fun? You know, so I'm going to lose weight, not gain weight. Exactly, yeah, things like that. So I, basically, <laughs> I'm just trying to say that I absolutely agree with you, and things are getting better and better every decade. And people who say things are getting worse, I don't know where they're coming from, and uh, I don't know what 
there are problems, but definitely less problems. Than I might be over optimistic just because I spent uh, two weeks ago uh, <laughs> some time uh, in uh, in a new Google conference, the Soul for X conference, when they yeah, got us fifty people together yeah. and asked them, you know, how can you solve the biggest problem in the world? And I got. It was so, such an exciting time. So I think I got a so, shot of optimism in the arm. <laughs> so, yeah, let's talk about that for a second. We'll get back to um, to other topics later. But that is definitely your, you know, local story. It's, you know, something that is very, very local to yourself. But it's also uh, a, a thing that had global uh not implications, but that was covered globally. It's that new Soul for X, which is a sort of conference put together by Google, kind of like TED is the way that people described it. It's uh, inviting people who have interesting things to say and amazing uh, uh, in amazing fields of research and asking them to speak for 15, 20 minutes and explain that to the world. Is that a fair representation of what it is? Well, not exactly. So, first of all, it's uh, Soul for X. It's coming from Google X. It's their secret research uh, uh, part of Google, and the, the, it's different than TED because they had a specific agenda. You had to have a huge problem, a radical solution, and a breakthrough technology. Okay. That's what they are looking for. The X was in the middle of that. You have to address huge problems. So, the huge problem people addressed was uh, drinking water. It was food. It was, uh, in my, you know, myself, sustainability with synthetic biology. It was um, education. And how radical solution coming from breakthrough technology that are happening now or will happen in the near future can solve those problems. And I encourage you to go to wesolve4x.com. That's a website. And listen to some of the talk. I think you'll be, you know, it's... It, it was supposed to be more pie in the sky, not exactly pie in the sky, but more out there, you know, mm. something that looks like science fiction, but it just might actually work. So I just encourage the audience name. to go there. Hmm? I was saying it's a beautiful name for a conference that prays, Soul for X. <laughs> and it's, it's like an equation, and uh, yes. for, the, for the speaker, they gave us a list of 10 equ- actual equations, uh, you know, Google being, you know, filled with geeks. So, so the equation was T equal 12. So you have 12 minutes or limit your ego time one to, you know, for the time of the conference to zero. <laughs> it was, it was just an amazing, it was a list of actual 10 equations that you have to so, abide by. Abide by, exactly. Yeah. It was so cool. And, you know, people say that uh, Google is evil or not evil. Well, Google is, uh, is just a corporation. And not like other people, I don't believe corporations are people. It's, uh, but the people in Google, they are, you know, evil, not evil. They are just geeks like us. Yeah. So and it was great having, you know, you know, speaking to uh, Eric Schmidt and Sergey Brin, for example. Sergey talked how he, you know, you know, when he wake up in the morning, goes to his self-driving car, press a button, and his, the car drive him to work. <laughs> so, and, and his X, you know, everybody, sh- everybody in the conference had an X, what they are solving for. So his X was magic. And, you know, magic is the same as Arthur C. Clarke said that uh, advanced, you know, if, you're, uh, if uh, your technology-, technology is advanced enough, it's indistinguishable from magic. Exactly. And he said the, the self-driving car is just like magic. So and they are trying to do so, similar things. Can, can you tell us a little bit about before we move on? Can you tell us about your uh, Soul for X uh, talk? Sure. So um, I just started a company a year ago. Uh, it's Genome Compiler, and what we are doing is trying to democratize the tools of creation, uh, quite literally. So 
any of your audience that knows about computers know that uh, computers understand binary codes, ones and zeros, but nobody writes computer software by typing ones and zeros. They use abstraction layer. They use tool to design, debug, and compile their code into software. And biology also, it's also information technology. And uh, the computers, ourselves, which are just living computers, they also understand code, A, T, G, and C of DNA. But people in my lab, you know, people in academia still write with ones and zeros. They still write with A, T, G, and C. So we are building the tools to design, debug, and compile biological software that mm. can, you know, in the great, things about, the great thing about biology is that the software writes its own hardware and then eat some sugar and self-replicate. And no <laughs> computer can do that. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, check, check the talk. I think I'm, I'm excited about this. Uh, and we're actually building it right now. So we raised money and we're building our software. So I encourage you to, if you're interested, to, to check it out. So you go to uh, Weasel4x and you search for uh, Omri Drori. Yeah, or go to genomecompiler.com. Genome Both of them work. Okay, so excellent. Does this have any connection at all to the synthetic beef competition that's been happening recently? Synthetic beef? Yes. Oh, I heard about that. Somebody is trying to grow, uh, um, to grow, um, you know, in vitro meat. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, not not exactly, <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> so yeah. you couldn't just you can't. I mean, surely you would be able to use this to program how you want to make beef, or you know. Oh yeah, in in the future. So right now, future. so right now we can, you know, what the technology right now is that you can synthesize DNA. So just chemically synthesize it. So, and the the world record right now is 2.3 million uh, letters of code. It was a yeast chromosome, one of the yeast uh, chromosomes that that was done by uh, John Hopkins University. I think most people maybe recognize the Craig Venter Institute uh, or Craig Venter himself that uh, synthesized a million base pair, a whole bacterial cell, so the first living cell that uh, hmm. and they actually added uh, information about a website, so this cell have a website address inside of its genome and cool wow. things like that so you can build single cells, you can start, the technology is where you can start actually constructing chromosomes, small chromosomes to... Uh, okay, that's all very interesting, but how oh. long until <laughs> you, create, you create some kind of mutant uh, being that becomes self-aware and eats us all for, you know, food? Well, you know, I have a baby. I don't want to kill people. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm doing it for uh, uh, better reasons than that, but uh, let's say 30 years. Okay. <laughs> yes, that gives so, us time. Yeah. 30 years, yeah. We, we have... We, so we have enough time to Iran prepare. Go ahead with the bomb, you know. I think we've got that's. <laughs> yeah, I, I was kidding. I was kidding. You know, joking with my team that uh, I don't understand why Iran is spending so much money on nuclear bomb when they can just uh, synthesize a Ebola virus for you know three thousand dollars. But uh, the problem with the, the Ebola virus is that you can't control it. Exactly. Once it's out, you might you know damage your own people too. Yeah. I guess. Well. Yeah. Also, throwing an atomic bomb, I think, will hurt their own people. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. But yeah, yeah. That's let's. But let's let's talk about the cool things. Let's talk about dragons and flying horses, not about uh, <laughs> polar viruses. So you want to synthesize dragons and flying horses? Excellent. I think it would be cool, but uh, no, I'm trying to do <laughs> single cells that will produce biofuels or uh, or drugs. Even cooler, actually. That, um, that might be an application in the future: the ability to design one's own pet. Well, yeah. you know, a dragon is very sustainable. 
it's a very sustainable uh, mode of transportation. <laughs> well, it depends. If it eats people, for example, it might be difficult, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. It eats traffic. What? It eats traffic. That would be excellent. <laughs> That's a great market. Two, two problems in one. So yeah. you sold for XX. That's right. And when you start solving for triple X, it's a whole different kind of uh, industry. <laughs> well, All there. right. And a kind of creature. Also. Might have... Uh... Okay, let's stop there. <laughs> um Le the the other local story I wanted to mention, I mean, Kerwin is going to talk about the Queen uh, in a little bit. Um, our uh, French uh, thing is the presidential election where President Sarkozy has finally uh, declared for the president presidential race. It was obviously a very... You know, it wasn't even a secret. Everyone knew that he was going to do it, and he did it a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's been a lot of talk about what he uh, is going to do, what he wants to do, what the um, other candidates are, you know, pr standard presidential race. There's no need to go too much into it. Uh, one thing I want to uh, address, though, is the interesting... Um, story with the Twitter censorship, quote-unquote, um, there were a number of active fake accounts about Sarkozy um, on one side and about his message on the other. And when he declared, they, four of them, the main four, disappeared overnight. And there was a, a huge kerfuffle with... Uh, the campaign management trying to explain what they had done, Twitter tw trying to explain what they had done, and the internet going wild saying that, you know, Sarkozy had censored uh, Twitter, just like they do in China and just like, you know. So it seems that um, the the campaign had asked for the removal of one account, which was, uh, the name was very, was basically Nicolas Sarkozy with an underscore. So they said that this might be um, uh, construed as, you know, this might be confusing, which I guess I can see if you look for Nicolas Sarkozy and you see the account Nicolas Sarkozy, which is his real one that just opened, and the Sarkozy with an underscore, you might, you know, mistakenly follow the other one and that might lead to confusion. There were a number of other um, uh, uh, accounts that were clearly marked as uh, fake that Twitter went ahead and disabled anyway. Uh, they've restored the fake one with the name uh, Sarkozy, and the, the guy who managed it changed the name, so now he's good. They have not, however, restored the other ones that had a, a name of his message, which is uh, Strong France. They had things like, you know, uh, My Strong France or things like that. And these ones have apparently not been restored. And the campaign claims that they haven't uh, asked for the removal of those. Um, I would tend to believe uh, the, the Sarkozy side of things. Uh, people might tell me that I'm being naive, but um, he's been not encouraging critics, but there have been a, a few instances where um, there were satirical uh, articles in newspapers and he's always actively come out for you know saying that this was a, a strength of democracy so i don't think and also i don't think he would be or his campaign would be dumb enough to go and try to censor 
uh, Twitter actively. Or maybe they did and someone got fired and that was the end of that. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a funny uh, series of, um, of discussions happening after that. And there's another side to this also, um, which is that I believe it might be the campaign uh, of Sarkozy that actually did it. When he opened his account a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you could find a, a large amount, maybe in the dozens, of accounts saying, thank you for running it again, Mr. President, you know, thank you for uh, doing something for us and thank you for, you know, we're going to follow you, we're, this is great. And of course, all of those accounts were, you know, named normally, but they all had been created uh, the, a few days before. They had no profile picture and they, had, they were following only one person and that was Sarkozy. It's so, just like the rally that Putin had, like uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Very so. poorly orchestrated campaign, then, it's, isn't it? I mean, if if they're trying to get traction in social media, you can't start from a zero network. That Any, there's no leverage to get out of just putting an account online. It's yeah. Well, I guess you know. It's it's it, the the interesting thing is our opinion in France is they're sort of at least getting interested in that so it's it most people i mean the others have accounts too and by the way apparently they do that too uh the other candidates but um yeah that's that's the state of uh online campaigning in france i guess there of course that's marginal there are you know a few i don't know how many to this day but uh there are people following both you know all the candidates on twitter and uh, but yeah. that was sort of a funny um kerfuffle Let's so what's see. the major issues in france the election who do you think is going to win um so at the moment um the the candidate from the left uh he has close to a hundred thousand followers uh as a, a side note and uh let's say Let's see how so many... Can we just call the election by the number of Twitter followers? That would at least be a transparent election, right? We could replicate that model in all kinds of other places. Well, the problem is, you know, they can create ridiculously fake accounts and uh, follow people. Um, so, François Hollande, who is the candidate from the left, has 173,000 followers. So, it would seem like... I think he's been online longer. But uh, yeah, it would definitely seem longer like... and his followers might be younger. Uh, possibly, yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely the the left side of the uh, of the debate is usually. Well, I don't know. It seems to me like they're younger and maybe a little bit more tech savvy. But who knows? Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, uh, Omri, it's basically the debate is. Hmm. Sarkozy is trying to, posi to position himself very much above the fray. Uh, obviously, he's an outgoing president, so everyone is attacking him on what he didn't do, which is absolutely a valid way of approaching things. Anytime he says, I will do that, people say, well, why didn't you do it before? You had five years. And it's a sort of uh, awkward position to be in. Um, he, the, the, the left, the main candidate who is probably going to be elected, François Hollande, uh, the socialist. Uh, so I've, I've expressed many times the fact that I'm more of a right-wing person in France, which makes me pretty much center anywhere else in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
because you know I'm for uh, social security, I'm for free education, I'm for you know all of that, uh, and decent um, uh, unemployment benefits, all of that. And Sarkozy is for all of that too. Um, so the left, in my opinion, I want to be very careful when I say this: the left in France is very much to the left on a world stage or at least in the first world countries. Um, so Sarkozy is the candidate of the right in France, but he would have center-leaning politics for uh, the rest of the world. And he's basically in an awkward situation because he wanted to be the president of the uh, purchasing power, giving more purchasing power to the French people. And it, he didn't achieve that, far from it. And he's trying to say, well, we had a couple of, you know, pretty major crises, and that's why I didn't manage to do that. I think a lot of uh, – maybe it would be interesting to, to ask you guys what you think, but uh, my fiancé was telling me he did – Sarkozy actually did a very good job because a lot of people in Europe and around the world were putting France in the same bag as, um, you know, Greece, Italy, and, and Spain – and now France is looking like it's going to pull out. It's, you know, on that cusp. It's not completely um, uh, doomed anymore in people's opinions. Do you, do you guys agree with that vision or was France always not in that same category? I'm not sure if uh, I ever thought it was doomed to begin with, but I think what has been interesting externally looking at France is that uh, no news is good news. We haven't heard exactly. about really uh, ex any kind of extreme rioting or ex extreme demonstrations, uh, no huge civil unrest or you know, uh, political movements. Uh, we haven't heard about huge economic crises. It's been pretty calm in France, and, and that's a good thing. And it was... It wasn't the situation you expected when the crisis started, I guess? Is the... I guess I guess that uh, France being in the centre of the euro and being like a lot of other governments, like... Uh, like it, it's, a, it's a pretty strong OECD, first world economy, however you want to put it. It's the story of uh, French... The French economy could parallel uh, any of its neighbours. It could have looked like the UK, it could have looked like Germany, it could have looked like Spain or Italy. Mm. Um, it could have gone any direction. Um, and it hasn't. That's what I perceive from the news. There's an interesting thing which I could talk about, which maybe not a lot of people would give credence to, but one of the, the research projects that I'm working on at the moment is talking about the global city network in which, which are the cities that, that rule the world economy. And if you did that kind of analysis three or four years ago, you were basically saying that the world economy was run by London, New York, and Tokyo. Uh, and if you do it from, from 2009, which is the data set I had, it now looks more like London, Paris, and Tokyo. Hmm. New York has slipped down to... Uh, um, fourth place by a fairly big margin. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so I put that together then with what I see happening with the big businesses that are based in France, and I see a lot of the French multinationals are expanding uh, in the world markets. I think that there are a lot of French companies buying up a lot of the infrastructure in the UK, 
And one thing that I thought was particularly symbolic for me as an urbanist was to see the RATP logo on London buses. Now, to explain what that means to an international audience, RATP is the Parisian Transport Company, and they have recently bought out one of the uh, privately held bus companies in London. So it's, I think it's called London United, uh, and it's been rebranded very subtly. There's no mention of RATP, but there's the logo of the Seine River that the RATP uses now sitting alongside the phrase London United on yeah. dozens of buses that we see every day. Now, I don't think anyone in London knows, knows or sees any significance of that whatsoever, but I think it's just one more small addition to, you know, uh, I pay my electricity and gas bills to EDF, GDF, for example, which is the French uh, energy provider, yeah. That's right. So um, for me, I think France um, economically has been positioning itself very well through this crisis. Its businesses have been very stable and they've been expanding uh, sensibly and assertively. And maybe it's hard to see the benefit of that right now. I think um, I think that that has probably helped stabilize the French economy a lot French economy uh, could have been a bubble that popped, and I don't think it has, and I'm not sure it really will. Hmm. What I about you? Uh, uh, yeah, so I, so I think that in Israel, when they talk about the euro crisis, they always talk about Germany and France as uh, the main powers that uh, discuss between them if to bail out this country hmm. or the next. So uh, I think if I wear my Scott Johnson American hat, <laughs> uh, if you go back to the election, I think it's like, uh, A, do the French have an election at all? And B, are they electing between uh, stinky cheese and baguettes? You know, I don't, <laughs> think they, I don't think they care or know the difference. And I think yeah. it's exactly what Cohen said. So if it's uh, no news, it's good news. So, so there, there are there are two two. I don't want to dodge your question. Um, there are two things, two main things that uh, that he Sarkozy is talking about. Uh, okay, so the opposition is saying uh, things like we need to hire more um, uh, uh, civil workers, civil servants, which to me seems like suicide. Um, and they're saying we need to – one of the measures he is proposing is the uh, generational contract, which would be if a, a senior worker uh, – and by that I mean senior citizen going close to retirement um, – wants to keep working, he can stay on in the company and um, work as a team with a young new hire – and in that case, to to teach him the trade, and in that case, both of those would uh, not have taxes attached to their salary for the employer. So the idea would be you lower the employer's uh, taxes, and so he can employ both the senior guy and the uh, young guy. So that would help on both sides. I'm not sure. I think this is like a stopgap because then the the when he's he's qualified uh he goes back to being expensive for the for the employer but the 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 real problem of employment in france is that it's incredibly difficult to fire people so as a consequence people you know companies hesitate a lot to hiring people 
So uh, that's my interpretation of the of the matter. Um, I think Israel wish uh, we had these problems going to election. I think uh, our election <laughs> yeah. is more, uh, you know, uh, if we're going to attack this country or uh, yeah, do we going? <laughs> are we going to lose our freedom and becoming a religious theocracy? It's uh, it's. Uh, yeah. I wish I had uh, these kind uh, yeah. of problems. Yeah. Well, I, well, I think that's quite an interesting policy, though. I think yeah. it sounds quite innovative, and it sounds like the kind of uh, ideas that. A lot of economies are going to have to start generating because of the aging, the aging population. And the uh, fact that the welfare yeah. system can't necessarily. Afford I'm not sure. I, I I would need to check. I'm not sure he can go beyond the age of retirement, though. You know, it, it's not the, the the senior guy can't go beyond the age of retirement. It's just that at the end, in order to keep him employed until the age of retirement, uh, it's easier for you know the the. Uh, company to pass on the re- to to pass the relay stick. Why do um, people retire at all? That's a question I never well, understood. There's so being a scientist. My, my my PI is seventy five years old, and the last time I saw him, he was still cutting uh, pea leaves <laughs> to produce uh, you know photosynthetic proteins. But you know, if you like what you're doing, why stop? <laughs> well, that's the thing in France. So as you might know, uh, Sarkozy had a very, very difficult fight to raise the retirement age from 60 to 62. And I think the rest of the world was looking at us thinking, yeah, 67 are you 65. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you, yeah. you, you want to retire, you're trying to raise it to 62 and this is a problem? It's yeah. people, you know, outside of France. Well, people in France don't understand. It, it's like they are very uh, there was something about someone saying that you're not very familiar with the laws of arithmetic or you want to defy the laws of physics or something like that and people in France don't want to abide by the laws of phys- physics and arithmetics um another thing uh, that Sarkozy wants to do which is somewhat controversial uh, for a reason I understand is that he wants to um base the big decisions in the country oh and by the way about the retirement thing i think the 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 rating of the country would be a lot worse if he hadn't raised that age to 62 uh now no one is is i think no one can claim that it was a bad decision now uh even those who were protesting before although i'm not sure they're you think it made that big a difference in the pension costs I think it makes uh, uh, any difference is good. Um, yeah, think about anyway. the, the aging of the population. I think uh, 60 was a very old age. A hundred years, yeah, exactly. years ago, the life expectancy of most people, I think, was 60 or 50. Yeah, you know? Exactly. It's, uh, um, so so an- another, another thing he wants to do is to um, um, get the big decisions for the country. He wants to have referendums to vote yes or no on the big decisions. And there is a, a fair deal of concern that this will, you know, for example, for the retirement, he would have wanted to have that referendum for these kinds of cases. Now the other one he wants to do is he wants to make it so when you are unemployed, you have to follow uh, an, uh, you have to follow an education course, and at the end of your education course, whatever the topic, you have to accept a job that the um, uh, unemployment office will offer you um, and on that he wants to have a referendum and what the, op- the, the the people are saying that oppose this measure is that of course you can 't ask the people to vote on to vote on a hot issue because they you know they might 
not know enough about the issue. They might vote, um, you know, with a, 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 on a very binary thing. For example, on on um, I don't know the death penalty. They might not have voted to abolish it on the. Um, um, uh, at the time on uh, abortion, they might not voted to have it uh, allowed or things like that, and so you, you can't decide. You can't decide on everything by referendum. It's a dangerous thing, and I, I, I understand that concern. Although a lot of countries do that from time to time, and it works. You know, you have to trust the people too, and that's what he's saying. I think the the reason the the semi hidden reason why he wants to do it is to bypass the incredibly powerful unions in France that are not a, a force in my opinion not a force of negotiation but a force of uh, uh blocking negotiations and he wants to have that weapon as a, a, a threat so that the unions have to accept some things or to, um, you know, lower their demands, some of them, because it's very difficult to do anything in France because of the, those unions. The thing is, union unions are not mandatory. You don't have to be unionized. Um, so only the most extreme people are part of unions. And in that case, you get the, the unions that have... Uh, a very little legitimacy over the general um uh, uh the 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 overall uh worker force but that have a lot of power so since he can't really change the unions they have become too strong and too corporatist uh he is using that um he's using that referendum as a strength uh, against them and that's one of the main things he's discussing um all right. Anyway, there, we're going to have a lot more of that. The election is in two, month, two months, and we'll uh, have uh, many occasions to talk about them in uh, the, the show. Let's, let's, unless you have comments about this, no? No. All right. <laughs> let's move on and finish the show with uh, Diamonds and Queens and Long Reigns uh, with Kerwin. Diamonds and queens and long reigns. Yes, Queen Elizabeth's <laughs> diamond jubilee. So I'm not sure exactly what the date is. Uh, it sort of gets chopped and changed around anyway. There are all sorts of dates to commemorate with uh, Queen Elizabeth, but uh, this year she has been on the throne for 60 years. I think that's the story. So her diamond jubilee. So this ought to be a momentous occasion. She's one of the longest reigning monarchs in the world. In a few years' time, she'll be the longest reigning monarch who's ever reigned in Britain uh, when she passes uh, Queen Victoria's record of 63 or 64 years, I think it is. But so what would be a fitting celebration for a queen on this occasion? Well, according to the Minister of Education, perhaps the people of Britain would like to show their gratitude by buying her a £2 million yacht. Oh, no. <laughs> What, wait, how does the Ministry of Education fit in all in that story? Oh, he's just the guy that proposed it. Oh. He's the man that proposed it to Cabinet. What? Oh, really? Yeah, this is what, you know, in a time of austerity, when we're laying waste to the National Health Service, <laughs> when we're privatizing the education system wholesale, we should do is give the Queen a, a yacht to replace the one that went out of commission a few years ago when it, when it got too old. So, right. you know. 
I can, I, I can only imagine that that news was gre- greeted by much embarrassment by the queen herself. Surely she must be like, wait, wait, wait. I don't really need a two million pound yacht. I think she can well, afford. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course, of course, the queen doesn't express embarrassment. No, of course, yeah. And the, the, the queen actually is not really capable of embarrassment. The only thing that is possible is that someone else is embarrassed because they've created embarrassment around the queen. The queen <laughs> is always above it all. Hmm. It's for the minister himself to be embarrassed. That is the proper protocol. So is he embarrassed? Uh, no, it seems <laughs> that he's merely batty. It just completely out of touch with the public, completely out of touch with what the austerity... So- so even thing. how has it's funny we didn't even we heard about the jubilee of course briefly but we don't really care for you know crowned uh, monarchs um, right but how how was that news was was there a scandal or what happened well the funny thing is that he was just sort of told to keep mum and and. Uh, that it probably wasn't the best idea. That was the nice way that Cameron put it. You know, probably not right now. Yeah. Uh, and and that was sort of the end of it. He was pretty much told to keep shush, I think. Okay. In my, so there was, the, uh, I have an image of a privileged, uh, you know, uh, English uh, noblesman saying, oh, two million pounds, that's so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. In some ways it really is. So... But the funny thing is what happens with the same education minister the week after, I believe it was, when it was revealed that he had attempted to purchase for the schools of Britain uh, a warehouse full of Bibles, and he was going to distribute these to all of the schools as um, using Department of Education <laughs> funds. Uh, and he'd sort of gone ahead with it without going through the proper expenditure protocols, The Bibles have been sitting there. The funding has not been allotted for their distribution. Uh, And so they've just been sort of waiting. And again, it's a case of exactly what kind of social movement or or conservative, not not the conservative party, but what kind of uh, organization is behind a man who is proposing these things. It was for example, that the yacht was an idea that there had been a small group of um, businessmen and other people, other organizations, planning this campaign to buy this yacht for the past three years. And then uh, what's driving this idea that we need to start kind of Americanizing the British culture and have this proselytizing of Bibles across the schools, etc.? Uh, it's it's a it's an absolute wonder that he he didn't have to resign spectacularly in either of those two weeks. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess that is going to be the uh, funny news that is also going to conclude this episode. Um, anything else you guys want to add? We've of course once again got well gone well beyond the one hour I was expecting, but you know, I don't know what's wrong with you know. One hour. It it has to gravitate around an hour and a half any time we do anything, no matter how many things we talk about. It's weird. It was a pleasure to be here again, and thank you for inviting me. I just uh, encourage if anybody is interested in synthetic biology to check it out. 
go to genomecompiler.com and watch the talk and just go to the Soul4x. There is a lot of inspiring talks. Cool. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, do you have any, you know, Twitter accounts or, or stuff like that that you want to pimp? Sure. It's uh, Omri underscore Drory, D-R-O-R-Y. And uh, I'm on Google Plus now. And uh, I have to. <laughs> they actually <laughs> gave me an audition to the Google X on uh, in, uh, Hangout. So, ah. so, so I had to get an official Google Plus account. Of course. Uh, but I'm there also. So just my name. Check it cool. out. Cool. Excellent. Thank you, Omri. Uh, what about you, Kerwin? You, do you still do stuff in the architecture field? In the architecture field? Uh, I don't design buildings. I do write about them occasionally. Um, but the biggest thing that I do, uh, apart from my research, is uh, the Global Urbanists, which is an online magazine uh, analyzing cities and urban policy issues around the world. So that's uh, globalurbanist.com, or you can follow it on Twitter, Global Urbanist, uh, or on Facebook and all other kinds of media streams. Excellent. Thank you very much, Gerwin. Uh, for myself, you'll find everything at patrickbeja.com, and I think that's going to be it for this show. We will be back next month with another set of interesting people and interesting news. So we hope to see you then. Bye, everyone. Good night. Good night. Frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.